Hey, Darren, I'm watching the best show on television. You want to know what it is? What is it? I think I know, but what is it? Inglorious Trexperts. <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, that's wait a second, that's not say. a TV show. It's but not it a, is. But it is. It, it is. is. It's a TV show because you can watch us on the Electric Now app. It's an app for streaming video podcasts as well as movies, television, and more. You can see us on demand on Electric Now. I demand it. I demand because I demand it. <laughs> Commodore Stone can watch us on the Electric Now app. And how do you get the Electric Now app? Because apparently people are having trouble understanding the concept. Just go to your app store from whatever device you're using or all of the devices you're using. And you download it to your phone, your iPad, your Roku, your whatever, whatever you, whatever you, whatever you have that streams. Other than a Viewmaster, you download it and, and then you watch it 100% free. There's no charge. Yeah. There's no Patreon. There's no Electronic Frontier. All there is is a free app. So download the Electric Now app from your favorite app store and watch us on Electric Now. You must learn to listen to the Rebel and the Rogue or you will not be allowed to come with me to Alderaan. If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hi, I'm Darren Doctorman, and today I am the only inglorious Trexpert. Mark Altman is off on assignment this week, and uh, he'll be back with us uh, hopefully next week. Uh, but today, we're going to have a very uh, fun and interesting discussion with, uh, uh, coincidentally, two friends of mine, Jeff Bond, whom you've heard on the show before, talking about Star Trek music, and Gene Kazicki, who is a... Uh, uh, a visual effects professional. He has worked in the industry for about 30 years and uh, is a uh, member of the uh, Visual Effects Society and uh, the uh, Motion Picture Academy and does a lot of work as an archivist and a, uh, a keeper of the flame of uh, visual effects uh, procedures and uh, photographs and all sorts of uh, fascinating ephemera from the history of visual effects and visual effects movies. And uh, so we're going to talk, be talking with them, and um, we're going to learn about their new book, which is Star Trek The Motion Picture, The Art and Visual Effects. And it's a... Uh, for a long time we've wanted this book, a, uh, a book that uh, tells uh, not only the story of the visual effects for the first motion picture, but... Um, give some behind-the-scenes photos and uh, lovely uh, insights into what exactly happened back then 40 years ago. And so we're going to be talking with them and 
uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation with them as much as I do. So here we are with Jeff Bond and Gene Kazicki, or if you prefer, Gene Kazicki and Jeff Bond. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was very good. You said that both at the same time. Well done. Um, we are uh, we are here to talk about your new book, Star Trek: The Motion Picture. The yes, the inside the art and visual effects by Jeff Bond and Gene Kazicki. Who decided uh, the order? That your names yeah. were presented alphabetically. Yeah, alphabet. Let's just go with okay. that. Let's just go with that. Good. Um, I don't want to hear about the horrible fights you two had over that. The thumb wrestling. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit first about both of your guys' background and what led you to this. Um, I know it's uh, it's partially uh, your uh, your interest in movies and visual effects and models and all that sort of things um and sometimes star trek uh but uh you know what brought you here uh, tell us a little bit both about your backgrounds jeff you want to go first oh, alphabetically boy uh well i think i had written this is goes way back but i i wrote a book on the music of star trek uh, in about 1999 and that was the first book that i got to write and uh, eventually I got hooked up with um, a publishing company called Titan Books that's in the UK. And uh, I think I done with a guy named Joe Fordham uh, who works for Cinefix magazine, uh, a book on Planet of the Apes. He, he uh, because of his deadlines, actually asked me to help him out and write half of that book. And I covered all the old uh Planet of the Apes films, the original ones, and he covered the new ones because he'd been covering them for Cinefax. Right. And uh, so because of that, I got in with Titan and started doing about one book a year or every other year with them. Uh, and at some point, I had pitched um, uh, a book on Star Trek The Motion Picture uh, visual effects because I knew that that was coming up. Or, or kind of like art of Star Trek, the motion picture. And Gene should chime in uh, because we can't really remember whose idea it was. <laughs> uh, but but it, it's something, uh, Gene had a lot of, of background and, and connections and interest in, uh, which made him uh, instrumental uh, in, in doing this book. So Gene, take it away. Well, I think... The, the the book idea uh, uh, is just really one of those, hey, you know, it, it, it's a good idea. It, it needs to be done. It was never done back at the time. So I think mm -hmm. I think the idea of a nice making of book, a coffee table book, uh, has been on a lot of people's minds for a long time. Um, as for myself, uh, you know, I'm I work in the visual effects field. I've been doing it for for about 30 years now. And along the way, you know, look. I grew up watching Star Wars and Star Trek and all that stuff as a kid. There's embarrassing photos of me in Star Trek costumes as a child, uh, one of which is in the book, uh, kind of. And, um, and, and, you know, as I started working in the business, I got to meet people that had worked on a lot of these films that I really, you know, grew up and respected. And I got to hang around with Richard Edlund and, and, and you know, and Richard Taylor and got to meet Doug Trumbull and talk to them. And, 
and you know not just sort of be in 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 a fan position but sort of in a colleague position because you know the more i talked especially to to richard taylor um you know who had a lot of perspective on the robert abel days the more i realized you know we've been in the same situation uh, uh even in, in in modern times you know we've all worked on films that have gone off the rails um we've the companies that i've worked for have picked up work because other companies have gotten fired and we've lost work because the studio wasn't satisfied with some of the work that we were doing so we've been on both sides of the coin and um you know through the visual effects society and then later doing some work with the american cinema tech and even the motion picture uh, academy you know i started hosting these retrospectives and talking to these people in a sort of more formal way and you know these these films that i grew up with you know when you look at them a lot of people will groan and go especially if they worked on it they'll go of all the films i've worked on why do you want to talk about that one and it's like you know what because the story of how that film was made is actually as interesting as the movie itself yeah. and in some cases in some of these with some of these films it's more interesting than the final product and and you know i'm not saying that that's necessarily the case with star trek but it did have this fascinating and almost torturous uh, uh, path to uh, getting onto the big screen. Yeah. And, you know, we started uncovering all these different little stories and stuff like that and started stringing them together. And it was like an onion coming apart. And, and, and there were people crying uh, as well, just like an onion. And um, it was just a really interesting thing um, that we wanted to cover. More directly about how this book started, um, number of years ago, Creature Features put out Preston Neal Jones's uh, Return to Tomorrow, right. which was um, which was intended to be the Cinefantastique article from 1980 that he had collected interviews from and just never got around to writing because their priorities shifted after the movie came out. And, and, and they are mostly uh, concurrent with the production of yes, the yeah. film. And, and, so, and, 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 uh, before the film came out, before it was yeah, finished. Exactly. And, and I got, um, they asked me to take a look at a manuscript of that and tell them, you know, uh, you know, say, what do you think? You know, I had been consulting on a number of different book projects, either providing archival photos or just, you know, linking authors to people that worked on the film or just sort of my own little insights and research and stuff like that. And I read the book and I said, you know, this is, this is fascinating. I said, it's not really a narrative book. It's an oral history. Right. And because it's just a record of, of the, um, of the uh, interviews at the time, which is fantastic for researchers. I go, it might be a bit of a hard read for the casual reader um, because there's not much of a narrative. And there's a lot of people saying a lot of the same thing. Um, and there's certainly no pictures in it, um, right. you know, uh, due to certain rights issues. But I said, it's a really cool thing. It could use a good edit. And they said, yeah, we know time, you know, budget, all of that stuff. It, it sort of got released as it did. And in a way, good that it did, because it sort of serves along with the uh, the phase two book that the Reeves Stevenses did before right. that. Right. And this art book, it's sort of, you know, sort of like a tripod. You need all three books. You can get a really good uh, feeling of, of what everybody went through on this, uh, uh, on this project, even though the book only really concentrates on the, the 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 artwork the movie section and 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 the movie and the movie section of it um and you know just talking to being friends with richard taylor since you know 2000 
uh, uh, and going over to his house and seeing some of the photos and artwork that he had um, sort of really uh, prompted this, you know, this really needs to be in a book. There's a, there's a, there's lots of great stories in here that haven't been told. Um, and, and we wanted to do, wanted to do that. I, yeah, you should go ahead. That the, uh, you know, we incorporated some material from uh, Return to Tomorrow because obviously uh, some people were no longer living, yeah. uh, therefore unavailable for us to interview and, and a few people that we weren't able to track down uh, where I, I felt there were some quotes in, in that book that were important. Or some people who um, want to remain hidden. Yes. Well, exactly. and, that, and, that's, and that's the other thing with Return to Tomorrow. There, and that was a thing that I sort of mentioned. I said, you know, there's two, there's two key people that have not been interviewed in Return to Tomorrow that are not in Return to Tomorrow. Uh, or three, actually. Doug Trumbull, Robert Abel, and Richard Taylor. For a variety of reasons, he just never got their interviews or thoughts on, on, on the record. And um, Robert Abel, unfortunately, has since passed away. Um, you know, Richard Taylor uh, speaks well for him. Um, and a lot of the other people that we've talked to speak well for Robert Abel. He was a very personable guy, despite of all the issues that came up with Star Trek. Uh, he remained close friends with a lot of people. Uh, uh, and a lot of people were very saddened at his passing because they thought he was, uh, you know, a really creative guy. Um, you know, Doug Trumbull probably didn't have time to submit to an interview because he was too busy trying to finish up the effects in 79. And, you know, and so we were able to correct that by, you know, subsequent interviews and chats with, uh, with Doug and uh, Richard. And then they sat down for a couple of on the record, you know, long conversations, uh, um, you know, that we were able to, lift and, and, and put quotes in the uh, put quotes in the book. Nice. If you think about it, I mean, what I, I think is fascinating about the book is that we were allowed to do it because mm -hmm. this was, you know, it it's been controversial for years. You know, people were fired. It's not a the kind of, you know, uh, happy, happy story that, yeah. you know, an authorized license Star Trek book uh, is normally supposed to tell. Right. So, we, you know, we're really happy that, you know, people at CBS and, and Paramount were very supportive of this project, you know, gave us access to a tremendous amount of material and, were, you know, looked at this book with a very light hand editorially. I don't recall any changes that they asked us to make. And, uh, I think that the, you know, the kind of legend and, the, you know, the facts regarding the movie are that, that uh, you know, the original people doing the visual effects and, and Robert Abel were not able to do what uh, was requested of them in the allotted time right. and were dismissed. Um, but that, I think that is kind of hung over the whole kind of, uh, you know, legend of, of Bob Abel and Abel and Associates, his company, that they were the ones who screwed up on Star Trek. And that's kind of all that they're known for now. And uh, one of the things that I was most fascinated by, you know, uh, particularly when we were talking to Richard Taylor or for this book, but, you know, even earlier, I, I knew very little about Richard Taylor and in meeting him at Jeans and talking to him, uh, you know, it, be, it was becoming clearer and clearer, like how much he had contributed to this and uh, other big projects. 
And uh, one of the things he was talking about was um, uh, the work that he and Abel and Associates did for ABC television, all the movie logos and stuff that they had done. And I, I think, uh, you know, there's the kind of this giant gap between 2001 and Star Wars, basically, in terms of movies where there were no, no kind of mind-blowing visual effects movies made between those. There were some that had good effects, like Silent Running uh, and whatever you can say about Logan's Run. The little, the better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mo most of these were done in a more of like kind of the dying days of the studio sure. effects departments. Uh, so they were using very kind of time-worn conventional techniques uh, for better or worse. And you weren't seeing in movies these kind of incredibly visually dazzling sequences where you couldn't even figure out how they were d done, which, right. which is what you got in 2001. But for me, like as a teenager in the 70s, what I was getting that from was watching these uh, graphics on ABC or in commercials mm -hmm. where there were these dazzling, you know, optical and le you know, lens flare effects and all, all street right. The whole back, backlit uh, animation stand yeah, kind exactly. of look that was established yeah. then. Yeah. I and was watching all this stuff just thinking like, how is this being done? I don't even understand this. And then when we were talking to uh, Richard Taylor, he started telling us his whole story of how he was doing these uh, like laser light shows for rock concerts and then got to start working for Bob Abel and started developing this like candy apple neon look, you know, for uh, things like the, the ABC Sunday night movie mm -hmm. uh, logo. And uh, I started realizing how much he really contributed to the look of, of Star Trek, the motion picture, because I think that's Here's what, one of the things that really differentiated that movie, even from uh, Star Wars and the other things being done, then was that a little bit of this kind of co the color palette and then this neon look uh, that you were getting from elements of the Enterprise and the kind of Art Deco look that, that, that went into some of the design aspects of the Enterprise. And I started realizing how integral uh, Richard Taylor's contribution was to that movie, and he's has been just totally unsung uh, over the years. And and it's not that other artists like Andy Probert and a lot of other people didn't contribute, you know, enormously to everything that you see in the movie. But I think that there, you know, Richard's contribution, I think, it has been unfairly ignored. And the, and the work, the kind of R and D that Abel and Associates did to get the movie yeah. going and that that and a lot of which really wound up into the mo in the movie and i think that that's one thing i'm really happy that we got to address in this book and 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 to expand on that slightly you know when when richard taylor started working at uh robert abel in the uh early 70s early to mid 70s he worked with richard edland uh, uh, on a lot of that stuff. And Richard Edlund left Abel to go work on Star Wars. And, uh, and in fact, not only that, a lot of uh, uh, other camera people left Abel to work on Star Trek. So here's the thing, Abel, Abel in the 70s was a, um, a real incubator of talent. Um, it, was, it was like an R&D factory. It's like, 
you know what, let's try some of these really crazy high concept designs and let's, you know, use this camera technology that we've got, which was uh, very much akin to slit scan. In fact, some of their early slit scan equipment, they bought directly from Doug Trumbull, you know, in the early 70s. They knew each other. This was a very small community. And and so they were great at growing uh, talent. Um, when when I first met uh, Richard Taylor uh, was when I started working at a company called Rhythm and Hughes uh, in uh, 1999, 2000. And um, up in the commercials department, we had uh, Richard Taylor and Bill Croyer uh, uh, sharing an office. And Bill, those guys worked on Tron. And uh, they loved to talk about Tron. It was Tron, Tron, Tron all day. You could get any question you wanted answered about Tron. Uh, from those guys, which was great. But then I turned to Richard and I said, I want to talk to you about Star Trek. And 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 he goes, oh, you know, he sort of rolled his eyes and it was another one of those, of all the things that I worked on, you want to talk about that? And it's like, yeah. And, you know, he goes, he goes, he goes, why? I didn't even get a credit on it. And I told him, I said, yes, actually you did. Yes, he, he goes, did, no, yeah. I, and he goes, He's no, the I only one I, who got a credit on and, it. And, and, that, and that's it. I said, buried at the bottom where where, where there's usually the statements that no animals were hurt, you know, during the filming of this movie, <laughs> uh, is a, a single line credit that says certain R, A, and A designs by R. W. Taylor or Richard Taylor. And, and he didn't even know it. He couldn't even put it, you know, um, uh, IMDB wouldn't even put it on his, on, his, on his page because they said he didn't get a credit. So I brought in a frame drive. And so we started talking about it. And, you know, what, what Jeff basically said is the design work that, we see on the screen that has endured a lot of that most of it in fact certainly with the enterprise and the look of the enterprise and and sort of that starfleet look um has endured uh, uh through multiple other you know movies and mother multiple other uh, uh artists you know sort of building upon that and it was all created by the artistic team over at uh r a and a uh, Robert Abel and Associates, and they also called their company Astra, which right. kind of made, trying to made, you know, figuring out who did what, because there were so many different names, um, you know, for, for Star Trek, the motion picture. And it wound up on the big screen. They may not have executed the designs. Certainly Magic Ham, uh, uh, well, well, first off, there was a whole team of artists at, uh, at Astra, at the Robert Abel and Associates, you know, Andy Probert, uh, uh, Paul, uh, uh, Dave Negron, uh, you know, Ed Vero, Ed Vero a whole, right. you know, a whole, a whole bunch of people. Richard Taylor was the art director, so he has to shepherd all of this. He adds his own creative style to it. Uh, very much a team effort. He always gives credit, you know, to, uh, to that team. Magic Cam, uh, uh, led by Jim Dow, brought their talents to it and their design sensibilities. Uh, um, right. They were uh, building. Howard, they were building the miniatures. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 then then you also have the Paramount side of things. So right. um, at times there were probably too many cooks in the kitchen, but at the same time it all came together, and uh, the design work has has endured. And that I think is the legacy of uh, of Abel's contribution uh, uh, to the film. And the other thing, you know, looking through the storyboards and things like that. A lot of the film uh, was storyboarded out by Robert Abel and Associates. Uh, Trumbull and Entertainment Effects Group, uh, uh, or sorry, Future General, uh, uh, because that company's names changed three times in all right. of this. Um, you know, 
they certainly uh, uh, came in and redid uh, the Spock spacewalk and certain others and the, the sequence with V'ger at the end. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the other stuff, it's 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 the, the storyboards go right back to um, to Abel and Associates. Yeah. And we felt that it was actually kind of an interesting thing to sort of say, okay, we've done the research here. We kind of have a handle on who did what and 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 the contributions of all these people. And it's time to give uh, credit where credit is due. And also, you know, we do mention the fact that, you know, Abel was fired and there were lots of tensions and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it, it caused a lot of problems on, on the film. But well, one, on the other hand, there were other problems as well. Well, one of the things that I found interesting was that because uh, Abel was brought on uh, fairly early into the process, um, they had a little bit of a uh, uh, butting heads with the art department and Harold Michelson. Because uh, I think that uh, when Abel was brought on, they uh, understood that they were responsible for a lot more of the design work than they actually uh, were actually used for. And and this was interesting. I I had always heard the narrative that, you know, they were brought on when um, Star Trek became a feature. And, you know, when you we discovered that that wasn't entirely true but here here's the thing with star trek and the visual effects the the motion picture came out two and a half years after star wars was released okay but the decision to make this movie you know make this a feature and do star wars level type effects was not made two and a half years after star wars it was made two and a half months after star wars and at that point in the summer of 77, um, the, uh, there were a handful of people on the planet that could basically tell Paramount, this is what you're getting into. You're going to try and do a big budget visual effects spectacle, you know, with, with big sets and, and science fiction, and spaceships and visual effects and maps and all that stuff. George Lucas, Gary Kurtz, John Dykstra, you could maybe say that Steven Spielberg, who was in the middle of Close Encounters in that, in that summer period, could give them some advice, and Doug Trumbull. That's about it. Those were the yeah. only ones that would have probably said, you know what, you really need to rethink this. And, and at the time, uh, Doug Trumbull, even though he had a connection to Paramount, was unavailable because he was committed to uh, Close Encounters. Right. John Dykstra was committed, to, um, was committed to Battlestar Galactica, so he was unavailable. Right. And um, so they really didn't have time to get, uh, you know, take advantage of their experience. So when left with sort of the two names that were known at the time, what are you going to do? The interesting thing is they weren't, Abel wasn't brought in just for the feature. Right. Abel was actually brought in at the tail end of phase two as a design and visual effects consultant. Right. Um, at the time, uh, Paramount owned a company called Magicam. And Magicam had a very talented model shop, which would subsequently go on to build all of the mod- most of the models from the motion picture. And they had this very int- intriguing system uh, whereby uh, two cameras were interlocked and combined with uh, sort of some state-of-the-art matting uh, technology. Um, Called the Magicam system. The, the Magicam system could, yeah. could, could, um, could fo- you could photograph ac- uh, actors on a blue screen set Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was linked optically, and then the cameras were slaved to another camera that was shooting uh, a scaled miniature. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And by scaling the moves, they could essentially, right. they could kind of do it live and they could do this, some really tricky uh, uh, compositing. And so it was felt that, hey, this might be something we would use for Star Trek uh, phase two. And so the earliest discussion sort of centered around that. And, you know, at the time, a lot of the vendors that worked on uh, the original Star Trek series, they were, they were still in business. Mm -hmm. But as Jeff sort of alluded to earlier, it was sort of the old guard. It was sort of the tried and true, uh, tried and true techniques. The original Star Trek series didn't shoot mo miniatures with motion control. They may have shot them under crank, but they essentially shot them with a, you know, with a large, big, heavy camera, with a big, heavy model, with a couple of grips uh, 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 that were sweating profusely in a stage that was lit with carbon arcs, and 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 it wasn't. It would not have provided the look. It would have provided a fine look for. Um, for uh, uh, for television, but once maybe maybe not you know uh, once it got into features, it, it it didn't you know wouldn't it wouldn't have wouldn't have worked, and unfortunately, Paramount made uh, the decision that you know Magic Cam, you guys are great, you're very super talented model builders, but you're a video system, and so you know we need someone with film experience. Right. Now, at the time, Robert Abel and Associates didn't have any feature film experience on the scale of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Right. They were certainly very talented in their design. They were certainly very talented in their visual effects, which were rendered on film, even mm -hmm. if it was for television. So it was felt that they would have an advantage. On top of that, they had a rudimentary motion control camera system, not as sophisticated as the one that was built for ILM for, right. for Star Wars or for Future General for Close Encounters, but certainly of the same type of, of technology. So the decision to sort of bring them in was actually a good one. And in fact, mm -hmm. uh, Doug even, you know, they checked in with Doug. Doug was, you know, part, his future general was part of Paramount and he did, you know, provide some consulting uh, uh, for them at that early time, even though he wasn't available. And he wound up saying, yeah, you know, Abel's a good, Abel's a good uh, choice. Um, the one thing, and and people knew it at the time, you know, they did they did do some due diligence. Um, unfortunately, the way commercials work, the budgets always go over. It, right. it you always do, and 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 you know what? With the money that's being thrown around in uh, advertising, it's acceptable. It's right. it's just it's just part of the uh, process. It drives people crazy. You know, sometimes schedules aren't met, uh, uh, and 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 that frustrates people as well. But it sort of comes with the uh, the territory, right? But and TV that, commercials do not have drop dead dates where they need to right. release a film or and will that, be sued by the theater owners. And that was, you know, when when you, then you know, the narrative at the time, the the Starlogs and the Cinefantastiques and all the other press at the time, you know, make great mention of of you know Abel getting fired and and all of that stuff, and then the. And then subsequently, subsequent articles in the very first issues of Cinefix talk about the pressures to deliver the effects. And, you know, look, there's a lot of blame to go around. To drop all of this on uh, the ABLE organization is probably a little uh, unfair. Certainly, they should, you know, they, they owned a certain amount of it. But uh, Paramount and even Gene Roddenberry own other, you know, pieces of it that all contributed. And that's the way these things work. You know, that's the thing that 30 years of working in, in the business is you can't just go and point to someone or some small group and say, 
this is the reason why we are in trouble now. No, it was a it, perfect storm, storm of uh, bad happenstance. It's, it's like an airplane crash. Yeah. Very often, it's not just one single problem. It's a whole it's a series of things. little things. things. Yeah. Exactly. And, and in the case of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Paramount had decided to release the film on December 7, 7, 1979, come hell or high water. They had booked it into theaters. They had taken the money from the theater owners yeah. and the ramifications of not delivering. Because, you know, these days, Phil, I, you know, I worked on Titanic and the, the release date on, on that thing changed a few times. Same with some of the other films uh, uh, that, that I've worked on. The, the movie dates slide and sometimes they slide in your favor and sometimes they slide, you know, work, they work against you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's, it's fairly common practice. But back then, what was different, what made Star Trek different was the fact that they had taken the money. And if they hadn't have delivered a product on it, there is a good chance that uh, the theater owners would have gotten together in a class action lawsuit, sued Paramount. Yeah. And Paramount not in only fact, would they have... they promised to. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and here's the thing. They probably, Paramount probably would have lost... But worse than that, worse than the money and the whatever punitive damages would have right. been awarded, it would have opened up their books to examination. And at the time, and I'm maybe it still happens today, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, there were some practices of block booking and you know favoring certain theater chains with with the A level films and stuff like that that were supposedly uh, supposed to have been done away with and that is you know for a studio that's that's huge and you know witness art buckwald's suit uh, uh with the very same studio a number of sure, years later like over five or six come, years come later yeah yeah you know and and so studios were very nervous about having their factory and their process looked at by what could have been a regulatory uh agency yeah this well, was also right after the swarm which was another one that got lawsuits for uh, block blind bidding and black yeah but in the case of the swarm that would have been worth it <laughs> yeah yeah the, the you know one thing that i was thinking and in, in terms of i've always thought uh you know for years that oh well they should have just let able and associates you know finish this it would have you know the re end results of the experiments they were doing it wound up, would have wound up looking incredible uh, i think what would have come out of this, it would have been dazzling if they would have kept with their original concepts, but I think it also would have been in a way much more dated. Uh, and it would have had the kind of, you know, druggy psychedelic uh, look of the, the, you know, 60s and 70s in terms of, of, of their designs. And there would have been, you know, a, a lot more of a neon look to, to everything. Uh, and, and, you know, what they never quite figured out was the, the look of Beecher, uh mm -hmm. and uh, figuring out how to do that, what that was going to be. And I think why, why the movie ultimately has had such a really a lasting visual impact and, and influence on Star Trek and on other movies is because of what Trumbull uh, brought in and, and Dykstra brought in in terms of getting Sid Mead to work on, on Beecher, that whole yeah. element is truly forward-looking and, and, and... Well, you know, it was also, of, but born of desperation. It was, yeah. it was. And there was no time to overthink things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that, I think, was... I think that was... And, 
the able groups uh, uh, stumbling point they they were working on some very advanced technology um, but they didn't have the simple backup plan that it was kind of needed should that technology not be able to reach fruition right. and again you know, I, I say that, but at the same time, you have to think back to Star Wars, which was happening just a few years prior. They ran into their own technology uh, uh, problems, and they were forced to come up with backup plans. You know, they Star Wars was initially supposed to have a whole bunch of front projection plates ready to go right. so that George Lucas could film all of the actors that were in the cockpits using front projection techniques, mm -hmm. and it would all be done in camera. And that meant that everything had to be, those shots, those backgrounds, had to be composited and on film and, 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 and ready to go. And they weren't. And it created a huge problem. And right. that show very nearly didn't get finished in time. And Lucas wound up in the hospital with you know, chest pains, mm -hmm. in large part due to the filming pressures and coming back and realizing, oh my God, I've got all this amount of work to do. And you know they needed you know, Star Wars needed to prove something. And it's like, you've been working on this for almost a year and you haven't shot any film yet. So they rushed out and they shot the simplest shot in the film, which was the escape pod jettisoning, right. uh, uh, which was literally just a set with the model with some electric solenoids in there. They put the camera above it, roll camera, speed, drop. They got their first shot. And that's the kind of dog and pony show that yeah. Abel didn't do. Exactly. They just exactly. didn't because they were too busy, too busy trying to, you know, come up with the big thinking and big dreams that yeah. they didn't they didn't just take a moment and do something to show the suits. Yeah. And they got sucked into they also got sucked into and there's there's controversy on on on, on this part as well. They got sucked into areas that they shouldn't have been sucked into. Uh, uh, you know the the memory wall sequence and designing and designing the sets for for that. You know it's 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 you know it's a tough call. You know I I see it on shows that I'm involved with as well, where you know the visual effects takes over stuff for the production art department. You know that mm -hmm. should have been sort of in their silo is now a visual effects thing. And, you know, visual effects people will design something, but the art department has to build it, you know, or has right. to design it so that it can be built, so that it can be filmed, so then the visual effects can do it. And, and it just becomes this, this mess. But at the same time, everyone felt that the film, the project, needed that creative input, but there were very few uh, uh, limits uh, uh, and there was no overall uh, uh, referee because I think the concepts that they were trying to come up with were so sort of high and up there that it, people had a hard time um, sort of pinning down exactly what they wanted. Right. And again, that's also a product of the time because, it, you know, as, as accomplished as Robert Wise was as both an editor and a director by the time he got handed uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture, um, Star Wars worked because George Lucas was the visionary. He came up with the story. He supervised uh, uh, the designs, even though he wasn't putting uh, uh, pen to paper, although he did actually do that uh, uh, at, the, at the beginning. He could at least talk to his talk to his creatives uh, and, and, and tell them what he wanted and what he didn't want. And, you know, and Steven Spielberg, same thing on, on, on Close Encounters. And, but those were the only two guys, again, on the planet that could really ha had any experience doing it. Um, 
And I think that contributed to the uh, the storm that we're that we're talking about. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the things that is uh, talked about is the fact that Doug Trumbull came in at the last minute and was given a ton of power on the production yeah. to get it done. And I think it's because of that, it's because he held out for that, because they had asked him to come on earlier, yep. and he didn't want to. He, he yep. hated the idea of having to do that. Yep. And, but one of the first things he did was, uh, he, you know, they were looking at the, uh, at the memory wall sequence, and he said, we cannot do this. It's terrible. It doesn't yeah. work. The methods and, that ha have and not, not come just, up with, not, and not and, and just tell, as a, a visual effects. Yeah. And tell Bob Wise, Bob, we have to throw this out. Exactly. And it's not just because of shoddy visual effects or anything like that. It doesn't work as a storytelling point either. Yes. And he, he realized that. And it's like, you know what? What are we, what part of the story, you know, in, of the uh, portion of the film, what's the story that we're trying to tell? Right. And, and, and so that had not been uh, fully, fully fleshed out. Um, and, and Doug realized that, and to his credit, he had the guts to say, you know what, I can't make this work. I just yeah. can't, I, you know, it, it's, it's gone. It's, it's money spent, chalk it up, we're gonna have to reshoot, we're gonna have to reshoot with the principal actors, which, right. you know, that's, that's what every production manager on a, on a big motion picture fears it's like what Nightmare. i have to yes. bring back i have to bring back the cast i have to bring back the principals you know how much that's going to cost and you know look they came up with a way to do it that that minimized uh minimized the hurt right. um and quite frankly uh not only and i i want to give credit certainly in that sequence to robert mccall and mm -hmm. and 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 uh, doug's uh Doug's idea to bring Robert McCall in was an, another uh, genius level desperation, uh, uh, Hail Mary, whatever you right. want to call it, that paid off big time just as much as John Dykstra's call to Sid Mead saying, hey, you know, I've admired your work for a while. Have you ever start, thought about working in a movie about this project that I got? I think, uh, you know, not to belabor this point, but that the, they wound up getting the best of you know, all worlds ultimately, and I compare it to, to Alien, you know, which was done the same right. year, which really benefited from having completely different perspectives uh, in, in terms of the worlds they were dealing with. They had Ron Cobb, you know, de designing all this clunky hardware. The Earth technology, right. Yeah, and H.R. And Giger designing all the alien technology. So that when you looked at that stuff, you, it was like, literally, this is from another world. I don't right. recognize this. I've never seen this before. And they got the same kind of results with Star Trek. The, you know, the, the Federation and Starfleet all has a specific look. You have the you know the Klingon look, which which is completely different, and 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 you've got this this abstract, surreal imagery from Bob McCall, which is you know the, just kind of the whole world of thought, inside uh, you know Beecher's memory, and then you've got Sid Mead uh, designing this exterior for Beecher, which truly got across the idea that this was something incomprehensible that you right. couldn't even see the whole thing at once. Right. Uh, in the movie, uh, and that wound up, I think, really working. And it worked for Star Trek, which was all about strange new worlds and seeing different cultures and different, you know, alien civilizations. And it worked 
just to influence science fiction and space movies, I think, going forward from that. So obviously you guys uh, cover, um, you know, all these various uh, topics in your book. Uh, what is your uh, what is your favorite thing that uh, you got to include in the book, or, uh, or something that you were you were surprised by when you were going through stuff, if at all? Don't all speak at once, Jeff. You want to? Well, the, I, yeah, I already said this, but it was uh, it was really the contribution and background from Richard Taylor. I love that we were able to include some of the you know the images from the commercials. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the, we included like the, the Levi's, the, the insane Levi's, you know, commercial imagery that was probably some of the most crazy visual. Yeah, it's called the, the trademark uh, commercial. Yeah. yeah, that had ever been put on television and, and the ABC Sunday Night Movie logo. The connection between that stuff and what eventually wound up in, in Star Trek, the motion picture, I think is is the most fascinating and most overlooked uh, story uh, of, of that movie for me. And, you know, look, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people have been saying for a while, oh, CBS doesn't care about Star Trek the motion picture or Paramount doesn't care about Star Trek the motion picture, you know. Uh, uh, and I have to say that our experience with both of those entities, uh, um, you know, has, has was nothing could have been further from the truth. Uh, John Van Sitters and Marion Cordry uh, uh, really went out of their way to help us get imagery. Um, you know, when we first sat down with them, uh, they made it clear that this was a book that they wanted to see and they had been sort of pushing for as well and they were happy to see it finally coming to fruition. Um, they had to admit that just over the years, and I've seen this with other properties at other studios as well, so it's not just something exclusive to Star Trek The Motion Picture at Paramount, that stuff gets lost, stuff gets thrown away, you know, when, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of effort to archive this stuff. And so they go, you can have anything that we have. Uh, you know, if you look, look through this imagery catalog that we have and, 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 and you can use it, which was great. And we found, you know, that it's like, okay, where's, where's the artwork? And it's like, you know, what does Paramount have? Because at the time we did the book, Paramount and CBS were still sort of separate entities and that's now sort of being patched up. And so a call was placed over to Paramount and Paramount participated in this. They sent over a drive of behind the scenes stills uh, uh, for me to look through all the first sort of the first unit photography, uh, the behind the scenes stuff and the makeup and on the stages and then the meetings and stuff like that. And, and, you know, when I went over to the CBS archives to go through the drive, you know, we were, Oh God, how, how many of the, how many files are on this thing? And because they were huge, they were just large files and they were, they're having a hard time load, loading them up. And we did an image count. Paramount sent over 27,192 files, pictures, for us to go through. That's the I would think that that would help out things a lot. That was, that was, that was the equivalent. I, I did the math. That's the equivalent of nearly 800 rolls of film. Just the mere fact that 800 rolls of film were shot on a movie uh, in a day before we have iPhones where we have great cameras, you know, on our phones and we're not right. using them because of we can't, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's just it was just incredible. So going through that trove of photos, as well as then talking to uh, Andy Probert, very generously sent over artwork and things like that, uh, uh, drawings and scans of drawings that he had done. Um, 
We found other stuff, uh, another sort of unsung hero in all of this was a gentleman by the name of Virgil Morano, who um, started working over at Able around the same time as Richard Taylor, uh, sort of doing their, their photo uh, labs uh, uh, and stuff like that, processing stills as well as, as helping archive stuff. And he wound up moving over to uh, Doug Trumbull's group. And uh, after Doug Trumbull, uh, he stayed with Richard Edlund at Boss and he became their stills photographer. So if you've read a Cinefix magazine on, I don't know, Star Trek The Motion Picture, 2010, Ghostbusters, Blade Runner, Big Trouble in Little China, all these classic films, chances are he's the guy that took the photo that's in the magazine. And he saved a lot of stuff. He would take the Robert McCall paintings that were big. Some of these things were like six feet wide. Right. And he would shoot them with an eight by 10 plate camera that has just incredible resolution and thank god he saved copies of that stuff he mm -hmm. saved copies of all the enterprise uh pr uh, uh stuff uh where the enterprise is in space and he, in fact he told me how that stuff was shot and the process by which they shot the enterprise um you know, not just with the little uh, mechanical uh, auto inspection mirrors, but just how those prints were made was 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 fascinating. And so, you know, Rick Sternbach had some uh, drawings of little work bee work pods uh, uh, that never made it into the film that that are straight out of 2001. Uh, yeah. You can tell the influence there. That was that was great to see. So there was there was a lot of cool stuff, but then we're faced with the challenge of the fact that Star Wars is, or Star Wars, Star Trek, the motion picture is 40 years old. Mm -hmm. It's been published in magazines and books in the time period. And we now have the internet and we now have Facebook and we have Facebook groups. So it's like the challenge was really to find stuff that we hadn't seen before. Right. And, you know, I have, you know, I have concept, I have concept art on my, that concept art right there. Uh, uh, I got because um, uh, Virgil Morano uh, uh, kept it, you know. Um, and so we, we, we have all this this stuff. It was a matter of trying to sift through it and find stuff that people either hadn't seen before or if they had seen before, at least there was a compelling story behind it or there was some little detail in there that had not been revealed yet. Right, or and, given context to it. Or, 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 or put it in the proper context. And right. we felt that that was sort of the biggest challenge because everybody's seen photos of the Enterprise in space and we knew we weren't gonna be able to please every single fan with every, you know, that may be interested in the uniforms or the costumes or the set, con, you know, the consoles or the graphics and stuff like that. You know, we had a, we had a budget for uh, uh, for all this in terms of pages and number of photos, um, we exceeded it. Uh, we 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 got we got Titan you know to agree to to put more in, and as soon as they put more in, I said I found some more great photos and I sent them over and they go, wow these are these are good and it's like okay we'll find a way to put them in somewhere <laughs> or they would say you know what you only get two out of the six you know what two are the ones that you want the most. Which and, of your children need to die? Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and so you know, Titan Titan was great uh, uh, for 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 all of that. We really sort of hammered them to try and make it bigger and better. 
and um, and eventually, you know, we settled on uh, the 191 odd pages. I think we got something like 400 images in there, which was that's amazing. Close to double, close to double what what we initially thought we would get. Yeah, I, I did a book for Titan on the the J.J. Abrams movies, the three movies, and it's the same uh, page count and size as as this book, which is for one. So it gives you an idea how much we were able to get into this. Nice. Well, I'm sure looking forward to seeing my copy. Uh, it's my, Mine is on order, and uh, probably by the time this uh, episode comes out, I will have it and uh, will be enjoying it. We'll um, sign for you, Darren, next time human beings are allowed to get together. Well, who knows when or if that'll ever happen again, but uh, well, uh, just de knowing We're developing that a special ink happy. that uh, destroys uh, coronavirus when we sign right. your book. <laughs> I appreciate that. Well, guys, thanks so much for sharing this uh, this wonderful journey you've taken and uh, have invited us all to go with you. Um, I, uh, I have enjoyed both of your work for many years and have enjoyed you as friends for many years. So Absolutely, Darren. I thank you both for joining us here on the Inglorious Trexperts, and uh, I hope that the book does really, really well. So do we. Thanks for you having too? us. Yep, thank, thank you. you. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed that discussion with Jeff Bond and Gene Kazicki. Um, I know I've been looking forward to this book for a long, long time, and it is a, uh, a good uh, companion piece to the Return to Tomorrow book that came out a few years ago by Preston Neal Jones. And uh, this uh, sort of uh, finishes the story a little bit and certainly gives a more visual uh, version of it. And uh, I know that uh, I was very happy to uh, have contributed some images from our work on the uh, uh, mo uh, Motion Picture Director's Edition. Uh, I'll remember it. And uh, luckily that they, they had some space to include uh, our work on that from back in 2000 and 2001. So uh, I thank them for joining us and I thank you for joining us here on the Inglorious Trexperts. Uh, we continue to uh, try to bring you new content through this, uh, the pandemic and beyond, and we thank you for coming back week after week. Um, as always, uh, keep on trekking ingloriously, of course. Shh! Make it so. This show was produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.